Welcome everybody to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott. I'm here with Dr. Shiloh. Hello, Dr. Shiloh. Hello, Dr. Scott. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. It's July. So start planning for a number of true crime and podcast events in late summer and fall. True Crime Podcast Festival will be in Dallas, August 26th through the 28th. So we're going to be on a panel there with doctors from Women in Crime discussing the Sherry Papini case. Savannah Crime Expo will be on September 10th, and we will also have a booth there. And lastly, we will be attending the Pacific Northwest True Crime Festival on October 8th and 9th, and we will have a presentation there as well. Right now, it's to be announced by the event as to what our topic is going to be, but we will be feeding you the information and filling you in on that topic pretty soon. Yes, it's going to be a good one. I can say that. And we're looking forward to going to another inaugural event. It's exciting. Yeah. Yes. So before we get started here on our vintage episode this month, in our last forensic psych episode, we discussed what we currently know about school shooters. That was episode 100 for us. And in that episode, we reviewed the history and evolution of these types of mass casualty events in America. And then we covered the latest literature and really what that tells us about prevention strategies. We didn't want to just give you all the doom and gloom. We wanted to give you real information about what can be done about that. And there's a lot. So we hope you go back and listen to episode 100 if you haven't already. Right. Once again, I want to give you props for taking the absolute lead on that particular episode with all of the intense research that it contains. It's a really dense episode. Mm. And I would go so far as to encourage people, you know, I never encourage people to proselytize about our podcast, but we both feel very passionate about this subject that people need to be educated on right. what the phenomenon actually is instead of what a lot of disparate media sources tell you that it is or don't tell you what it is. Educate yourself. We like to consider ourselves researchers that put our most important efforts into educating about important subjects. And this is one of them. So please take a minute to listen. And if you feel like there's an educator that you know, or a school person that you know, that would benefit from listening to it, please just send them a link. We'd appreciate it. Absolutely. And there's plenty of other resources in there to point them towards. So today we are talking about the Sphinx murder. And here I go, bringing us back to Pasadena again already. Sorry. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot in this old town. And Little I learned a <laughs> old lady from Pasadena. It's a great city. It is a great city. Here, please. But I learned of this unsolved murder while on a Pasadena true crime walking tour that oh, cool. I did with my mom and my sister. And it's actually the oldest and most infamous unsolved murder in Pasadena, which is interesting because you and I had a hard time really finding anything written or done about it, except for the original newspaper articles about it. But yes, it is pretty infamous in the area. And it's also been referred to as the, like I said, the Sphinx murder or the Don Juan dentist murder. So this is several decades old. However, we are going to have brief mentions of gun violence and of course, murder, as I've already said that word like a half a dozen times already. But as we go down this road of history, Dr. Scott, why don't you just start off with giving us an idea of who our 
very unlucky victim was. Yes. Thank you for that intro. I guess I would add to it that, as you said, we did have like a slim amount of information on this very mysterious crime. So we're going to tell you up front that we're going to do some conjecture about what might be going on. And so don't take it as fact. I'm just going to talk about some cultural events Mm -hmm. and other influences in society at the time and give some possibilities of what have might been at play, but we'll get to those later in the episode. So let me introduce you to Dr. Leonard Seaver. Dr. Leonard Seaver was between 40 and 44 years old, depending on the reporting source. He was a tall, slender, dark-complected bachelor in the Pasadena area in the early 1930s. Dr. Seaver was born in Russia in 1890, and his parents moved him to the U.S. when he was 16. He became a naturalized citizen in 1916 and was attending University of Michigan at that time. After moving to Southern California, he earned his doctorate in dentistry at USC, very famous dentistry program, even back then, continues to be to this day. He operated an aesthetic dental practice on Madison Avenue, right in what is now known as Old Town Pasadena. This is a really important thing to remember at the time. An aesthetic dental practice would mean that his patients were only the rich Mm, because you could not afford aesthetic dental. You couldn't afford braces. You couldn't afford to have anything done to your teeth unless you had a lot of money. It was very expensive back then. In the 1930s, especially. Absolutely. And not the greatest technology either for doing a lot. But what is reported is that he lived pretty modestly. He rented a room from a wealthy doctor. And what we do know, which is very much a part of his profile and background, is that he was very well-dressed, not overly lavish, but always very well put together, ate in moderately priced restaurants. Yeah, I just love the details that we get from old newspapers, like the old timiness of, let's tell you where he used to eat. (laughs) Right, well, it's almost like, I mean, in a way, it's kind of like our 24-hour news cycle today of where we've just got to put every bit of information that we possibly have. It's like she drove a beat-up brown Dodge (laughs) Dart that she inherited from her sister-in-law's orthopedic surgeon or whatever. But I love it because it's like, it gives such depth, but also... You know, when you can't find a lot else out there, we're like, oh, okay. We yeah, can, we got to put some filler in picture. here. Right. <laughs> So listen to this. The Santa Cruz Evening News printed at the time, and these this is a quote. He had feminine tastes without being effeminate. He would attend women's club meetings and women's teas and women's social functions, sometimes as the only male among them. He loved fine paintings, jewels, even old lace and feminine trinkets. Newspapers described him as the darling of Pasadena, Hollywood, Beverly Hills, and Los Angeles, and also that scores of beautiful women found romantic appeal in his intense slavic temperament. Additionally, a number of society women had regarded him as a brilliant conversationalist and a cosmopolite. Cosmopolite? Cosmopolite? I don't know. That's the term they use. I guess, like for cosmopolitan, right? Right, right. So, of course, all of these, you know, wonderful terms really only led to more emphasis on the jealous lover theories after his death occurred. And at his residence, he kept a trunk of not only the love letters from various women, but carbon copies of his replies to them. Isn't that wild? (laughs) That detail is just, I don't know. I think it's so interesting that we have that information. But also, he's not that hot if you look at pictures of him. And just this picture of him being the darling and this ladies' man of all these sort of rich, high-profile areas of Los Angeles at the time. I mean, he better 
have been one charming motherfucker with the way he wrote letters because <laughs> I think that's a really good point is that I, I think that his charm had a lot to do with it. And yes. here, if I had a, like, if we had a visual, I'd be doing a, like a red blinking light right now for conjecture is mm-hmm. maybe he was a little bit of a con, you know, like, Oh yeah. True. Right. True. You know, so he Could may be. not have like all the physical attributes of the most handsome or sexy guy around, but he's got all these other ways that he's able to insert himself yes. into society. And clearly he has the education and the ability to support himself through these other means as well. So the person, the doctor that he rented the room from was named Dr. Francis Weston. He reported that Seaver had served in the army during the war, which would have been World War One, and was shell-shocked after after seeing combat in France and that he was very triggered by the sight of firearms. Yeah. So at this time, the term shell shock is what they used when they started seeing what we know now as post-traumatic stress with men who were involved in these combat missions and traumatic incidents during the war. I remember doing one of my very first papers in undergrad on PTSD and really looking into this term of shell shock. And that's just the terminology that they came up with because these men would be on the battlefields, just glazed over, totally numb. It just not ever seeing anything like this before in their lives. And when people came home from the war, if they were fortunate, enough to survive, there were still these residual symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but we didn't have that terminology or criteria for that yet. And there was just a very, very limited understanding of what that was. But the doctor here that he lived with obviously had enough understanding as an MD to kind of be able to name it at least. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, he said that he was even triggered by the sight of firearms because the way in which he ends up meeting his fate. There are some really staggeringly significant photos from not only the Civil War, but also World War One of men before they went into the service and after they had literally been in trenches. Yeah. You know, where, and like war is clearly always going to be bloody and brutal, but back then, you know, just men being catatonic in trenches for weeks at a time while Mm -hmm. the wars raged on around them was not an uncommon thing, but there was no understanding for it. In fact, Hollywood actually played a very big role in conceptualizing that for the movie going public. There were several movies that came out after World War II that explained like why some of these veterans were coming back and immediately becoming hardcore alcoholics because they were trying to self-medicate or they were hiding in the basement, hiding in the attic and just not reintegrating into society because they couldn't. But yeah, so we're talking about something that's been significant for a long time, but only slowly came into understanding within the general population. So Weston also noted that Seaver was a member of the Masonic Lodge and was preparing to get a law degree at Harvard, always had a book under his arm and he was studying quietly at home. So this is really fascinating. We've got a picture that is not just one thing of this playboy about town, but also a very studious man that was, you know, maybe a a polymath, a well-rounded, somebody who is interested in a lot of things, but definitely presenting a different side to different people that he was around. He was regarded really as one of the leading younger professional men in the area. And he was well integrated into exclusive society circles. And he was a big supporter of the arts. He even founded the Artist Students Endowment, an organization for the encouragement of young artists through scholarship awards that he provided. 
educated as well as playing the violin. Yeah, so, himself. Yeah. Talk about well-rounded. Yeah. Yeah. So it even adds more to this mystery that persists to this day, despite an intensive investigation that included the interrogation of at least 700 young men in the area. Wow. That's a lot of police work for back in the 30s. Yeah. <laughs> well, so let's talk about what happened to Dr. Seaver. And here's what we know. In the early morning hours of December 13th, 1933, a delivery milkman made his way into the parking area of the Scottish Rite Cathedral, which is located at 150 North Madison Avenue in Pasadena. And he spotted what he thought was a drunk transient lying in the parking lot. But as he got closer, he saw the pools of blood and realized that it was something more serious. So he immediately called Pasadena Police Department to the gruesome scene upon discovery of the body. And that was Dr. Leonard Seaver. He was the deceased victim. He suffered two bullet wounds, one to the back of his head and one to the chest. And he was found lying next to his automobile. And a curious note lay on top of his body. The note read, 11.30 p.m. Tuesday Rockwell. And that was it. Police were quick to discover that the doctor's wallet and watch were missing, but they really quickly regarded this as a stall on the part of the killer, really like an attempt to sort of disguise the tragedy as work of somebody who would be robbing him rather than what the motive actually was or what they came to suspect as the investigation went on. Initially, examination of the body led surgeons to the belief that the dentist was slain sometime between 11 p.m. and midnight, although a caretaker in the cathedral, Peter Bennett, said he heard no sounds of a struggle or the firing of a weapon. Further investigation of the scene noted a key in the door of his car, but had never been turned to unlock the bolt. So surgeons said that the killer apparently fired the first shot into the head of the victim from behind and sent another bullet into the chest after the doctor collapsed. Powder marks were present on both wounds, indicating close-range shots. And in the more extensive autopsy, the coroner speculated that the shot through the heart was actually fired five to 10 minutes after the initial headshot. Police hypothesized that the killer either walked to the car with the doctor or crept out of the shadows, surprising him. And the additional piece here, just given to environment, is that it had been pouring rain that night. So you talk, I think we've talked before about how rain, and especially here in Southern California, because we're not used to these huge downpours happening, when it happens, our sensory perception gets off. <laughs> and it could be really easy to sneak up on someone because of the sound of the rain. But essentially, because the the key was in the car. They figured he he had put it in the, the key in the keyhole and hadn't even yet turned it. And he was shot. A cursory investigation revealed no indication that the dentist's life had been in danger previously. There had been no meeting at the cathedral that night and his offices were located about a block away. But this was his normal parking area since he was a member of the Scottish Rite, which we'll get into more. That's associated with the Masonic Lodge. And then his office was close by. So this was not an unusual place for his car to be parked. There was also a briefcase found beside the automobile, but it did not appear to have been tampered with at all. The straps were still fastened, although it 
wasn't locked and there was no trace of a weapon at the scene. Additionally, he wasn't dressed to go out to a social affair, but wearing sort of his daily brown suit that he would wear to the office. However, eventually three people would come forward and claim to have heard the gunshots and forensics and ballistics determined that the weapon had been a 32 caliber Ivor Johnson revolver. Okay. That's some interesting police work for that time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So there, there's some pretty good records, I guess, because of the nature of this crime. They published more about what they did have. They had no other clues. So let's just throw everything out there. And then here we are almost 100 years later, or we are 100 years later being able to take from yep. it. They even provide us with a timeline. And this is the way it goes. At 5 p.m. on December 12th, the doctor was still at the office and had spoken with an Ida Herbst by phone, confirming his attendance at a dinner at her home later that night. He left his office at 6 p.m. and was supposed to pick up a Mrs. Cook at 7.15 to escort her to the dinner. He never showed to pick her up, nor did he show up at the dinner at Mrs. Herbst. So weirdly, the witnesses that heard gunshots reported that it had happened around 7 p.m. So where was he for an hour? And then at 3.30 a.m., the caretaker of the Scottish Rite Temple Mr. Bennett said that he noticed Seaver's car in the parking lot. And then between 4.30 and 5 a.m., the milkman arrives and discovers the body. Yeah, so it's obvious that the initial coroner's determination of probably being around 11 p.m. that he was killed was wrong based on the gunshots and that he didn't show up to this dinner because you would think if he had gone to the dinner with Miss Cook and then maybe came back to the office for some reason, that that would be maybe put him around 11 o'clock but it seems like it happened much earlier. But still, you have kind of this missing window of time where his office staff reports him leaving at five and he left the office at six, but never showed up for dinner or to pick her up at 7.15. So very curious, especially if someone had surprised him right when he went out. Did he go for a walk somewhere? Not likely because of the rain, I'm thinking. But who knows? People's times could be off too. Again, almost 100 years old, right? <laughs> We're speculating here. So I just want to talk a little bit about the building of the Scottish Rite Cathedral because it sort of adds to the mystery of this crime. It's still standing and it is simply gorgeous. It, Like I mentioned, it's at 150 North Madison Avenue in Pasadena. So Seaver's office, again, was about a block away. This was his regular parking area. And because he was also a member of this Mason's temple, he was very familiar with this, this whole block in Pasadena. And the Scottish Rite Cathedral in Pasadena was built in 1925 in the zigzag modern style, which is one of the art deco style movements that you see a lot of in big cities that were up and coming in the 30s. Just gorgeous stuff. There's two sphinx that line the entrance to the lodge. So there's stairs. And as you walk up the stairs, there's a sphinx on either side of you. And it kind of, this is where it adds to kind of the lore and the mystery because people say, well, the sphinx were really the only witnesses to Dr. Seaver's murder that rainy night in 1933. And you can still go see them today. Um, wow, the, the love that. Yeah, the architects were Joseph J. Blick and W.C. Crowell. And the building was dedicated at a ceremony on February 18th, 1925, attended by approximately 1,700 high-degree Masons and their families. It is complete with an auditorium, a stage. It has 90 different scenery drops for the events and for the production that they put on. 
And the right, R-I-T-E, is a progressive series of degrees conferred by various Masonic organizations or bodies, each of which operates under the control of its own central authority. The Scottish Rite is one of the appendant bodies of Freemasonry that a master Mason may join for further exposure to the principles of Freemasonry. And from what I gather on the website of the Pasadena Scottish Rite, it looks like you have to be a 32nd degree Mason to join. So it's still up and running as a Scottish Rite associated with Freemasonry to this day. Their website shows that it's very welcoming. You can do tours there. Just a really, really neat building. There are some wonderful masonry buildings all around the country. There's another one there in Pasadena that is a Masonic temple that is turned into a theater, which is oh, wow. really fantastic. It's become a theater complex for, gosh, it's not open fist. Over in the arts district somewhere? It's over in the arts district and it's beautiful. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful inside and, and really designed to, inspire a sense of awe when you go in. So it's really a great place for a theater. So we're, we don't even, we cannot take the risk on going too far down <laughs> a, a rabbit hole on True. masonry itself, because that is in itself a fascinating subject. But just for, for those of you that might not even be acquainted at all, the Freemasons or masonry is an exclusive organization. There's always been a lot of mystery around the Freemasons, but really, what are they about? So in essence, the Freemasons are the oldest fraternal organization in the world with origins going all the way back to the Middle Ages in Europe as a guild or sort of a union of builders that included membership of those who exhibited the highest level of mastery in architecture and stoneworking. And that was really important in the Middle Ages because the Catholic Church was building cathedrals everywhere. So you have to have people with knowledge of building so that these enormous, enormous structures didn't collapse with the only materials they had to build with, which was stone and wood and some metal, but not certainly to the extent that we use metal today. So when the style of the European cathedral building started to decline, the Freemasons shifted their focus to philanthropic goals with the mission statement of Freemasons are a social and philanthropic organization meant to make its members lead more virtuous and socially oriented lives. The organization emphasizes core values that include religious tolerance, thirst for knowledge, and sociability, which that sounds like a great combination. And I like that. <laughs> Even though it's not really the secret society that people have thought it to be for a long time, it does have secret passwords and rituals that originate with the medieval guild. They're very famous for their secret handshakes as well. So fun fact, the Catholic Church to this day forbids members from being Freemasons. So even though it's not a religious organization and all of its members believe in what is called a supreme being or the grand architect of the universe and the membership itself contains many faiths, the mm -hmm. Catholic Church is the one that forbids membership because of the secret rituals performed within them, which is really ironic because okay. of all the secret stuff that's going on at the Vatican and has been for Hot calling years. the kettle black much. Yeah, exactly. So in the 19th century, the Pope declared the Masons the synagogue of Satan, going so far as to proclaim oh. their principles have always been considered irreconcilable with the doctrine of the church and therefore membership in them remains forbidden. The faithful who enroll in Masonic associations are in a state of grave sin and may not receive holy communion. So sounds like the Vatican might just be a little bit jealous that the 
Masons continued to do philanthropic work around the world, maybe kind of hedging their influence. Yeah. I don't know. The Masons built wonderful meeting halls wherever they expanded, often using a lot of imagery from various historical cultures. And of course, the Sphinx represents an incarnation or a form of Ra Parakti, a form of the powerful Egyptian sun god who is the holder of royal power and the protector of temple doors. So we've got power, influence, and mystery here guarding the temple doors yep. where the dead body was found. Yes. Well, thank you for not taking that to Da Vinci Code-ish for us today. I know, but there's <laughs> so a lot hard, of right? conspiracy theories about it. <laughs> Definitely. So for the the Scottish Rite in Pasadena, by 1930, the membership numbered around 1,400 or so members. And after the decline experienced during the Great Depression, membership climbed again. And on December 11th, 1945, they celebrated their 50th anniversary with about 1,700 members. But by the end of 1950, they had about 2,600 members. And by the 60th birthday in 1955, membership had doubled in one decade. So in 1957, the first major remodeling of this building got underway. And in 1959, authorization was obtained to purchase more property for expansion. The membership had grown to nearly 4,000 at that time. And in 1961, a new entrance and vestibule was constructed leading from the north parking lot directly into the banquet hall. It followed an Egyptian motif with terrazzo floor and appropriate furnishings. A new Scottish Rite Museum was also authorized. So you can visit that. And from comparing crime scene photographs to the actual building, because I went back there over there last month to go check it out, it appears that Dr. Seaver's car was parked on the north side of the building, just from how the windows are and what I could find with the limited crime scene photos, because they weren't really pulled back too much. There's now basically, you know, parking lots all around the building for the, the businesses behind and next to, but you can still go there and check it out and see the area where this doctor had his last moments. But just a really cool place. It's one of those things you don't know of because it's on a quieter street in the Old Town area and you drive by and you're like, whoa, what is that cool building? And who knew that it had all this history attached to it? Yeah. So fascinating stuff. And going back to the bit of investigative information that we have, Detective Lieutenant Harry Thomas was the investigator assigned to the case from Pasadena Police Department. But the Los Angeles District Attorney Chief Investigator, Blaney Matthews, also helped out handling many of the interviews, probably because of the high profile and wealthy circles in which Seaver ran. Yeah. So, yeah, I want people to put a pin in that because we're going to talk about a really interesting suspect description that Mr. Matthews gave gives us, which, I mean, talk about conjecture, but <laughs> it's almost as right. if he's playing FBI profiler. However, you know, there's this homicide that happens in someone who runs around in these wealthy high-profile circles. So it's a high-profile case by nature. And I'm sure the wealthy residents of Pasadena didn't want to think that there was a murderer on the loose for too long. So again, like, you know, this is 1930s. We kind of have the idea in our head of what detectives and police work was like just from noir media and entertainment. But as we've covered in other vintage episodes, not terribly sophisticated. It was a lot of just the hit in the streets and interviewing people and gathering intel. Of course, we know forensics wasn't great. It was okay. And there's some forensics that come into this. But I think with 
the high profile nature of the case, but also probably the limited resources of Pasadena Police Department, which is an average size police department nowadays, but it was probably average size back then, but relative to the size of police departments, they team up with the LA District Attorney's Office, who has their own investigators and can probably put a little bit more funding and resources towards this. So it's just an interesting look at like a very early collaboration between these two entities where the DA's office will hopefully end up prosecuting this crime at some point. But we see that they really wanted to have a hand in that and maybe getting some pressure from people with money or people in politics to solve this crime. So they end up teaming up with Pasadena PD. Right. Because remember earlier, what you found out that I was able to mention is that he was known not only in Pasadena, but he was the Beverly Hills doctor. He was the Los Angeles dentist to the stars, basically for the time. So there was another thing that popped up that there was a quarrel with a mystery woman. Dr. Seaver's nurse reportedly told police that she heard him quarreling with a woman in his office the day of his murder. We don't have any further info and we don't know if it's the same woman that we're about to talk about in this next point. So again, I want to be really upfront with what we don't know and then what we move forward with conjecture. So a 1933 LA Times article reported that a brunette woman held an excited whispered conversation with Seaver in his inner office around 6 p.m. on the night of his death. So already we're starting to see this collapse of our time frame that we already Mm -hmm. know. So they're, they're putting things together if we we can trust this 100-year-old information. The witness, which was the elevator operator in his building, fun fact, that was what I wanted to be when I wanted when I was a little kid growing up because there was one building in our, my hometown that still had an elevator operator in a really fancy outfit. Oh like my an, gosh. For like an eight-story building. It was like crazy. And you get to overhear <laughs> everyone's conversations and excited whispers. <laughs> right, excited whispers. <laughs> You're such a gossiper. That's why you wanted to do it. So this clearly non-confidential elevator operator told the police that the woman was dressed very chicly, but she was drenched from the torrential rains that were occurring. And this witness felt that the woman may have been warning Dr. Seaver of danger. So the witness stated that after the woman left, Dr. Seaver hurried out a few minutes later, visibly nervous. In other reports, the mystery woman was also given a name, Dorothy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You said that just like Wizard of Oz. You said that like Antium. Dorothy. (laughs) Yeah. So we have a little bit of maybe intel about what was going on before, a little bit about how he was acting and maybe he got some disturbing information or at least like it felt like he had to hurry out of there possibly. So later in December, December 18th, 1933, an arrest is actually made. And the person who was arrested was a bellboy, but he was also the son of the Scottish Rite caretaker, Mr. Bennett, that we mentioned before. And he was arrested after he was found in possession of a 32 caliber revolver. However, ballistics ends up ruling that weapon out. So ballistics was at a point where they could at least look at the striations and the markings on the actual murder bullet and compare that to the weapon and say, nope, it's not this one. I'm sure lots of people own 32 caliber revolvers back then but I'm sure they felt the connection was just close. However, in later December 1933, the DA investigator, Matthews, conducts several comprehensive interviews of witnesses, men, and many, many women connected to Seaver. After this, he stated that 
an arrest would be made within 36 hours. He was so sure that the information that he had gathered was actually leading to a suspect. And an article in the Los Angeles Examiner details a curious description of this suspect. I love this. Again, likely <laughs> obtained, yeah, from, from <laughs> investigator Matthews. They didn't name him, but it's it's pretty obvious. And I think it seems to be sort of this attempt at like a psychological or behavioral profile. Right. So here we go. The suspect was described as, quote... <laughs> Sorry, can't stop laughing. <laughs> Uh, are you going to like toil okay. your mustache? Sure, yeah, if I had one, I'd be twirling it right now. The perfect villain. This suspect is believed to be a dope addict <laughs> who has flown into frenzies, apparently under the influence of morphine or some other narcotic. He has an analytical mind and possesses a native cunning that might be turned into diabolical shrewdness. End quote. <laughs> the article goes on to say that he is also, quote, intelligent and suave, a victor in many a battle of wits. <laughs> I know. I think of like Princess Bride right now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's so battle. over the top. But wait, finish it. You got to finish it. <laughs> okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. He's able to disguise his suspected dope addiction. The man is a dabbler in criminology. Interesting, right? Like, okay. But it's um, also, it's so all over the place, right? <laughs> You're out of control, but he's very shrewd. You know? Yes. He's, he knows. It, it, it's almost like, eh, we don't really have anything. So we're going to say this guy's really smart and it has a knowledge of criminology. Yeah, yeah, I know. The information then goes on to say that the suspect likely became fond of a woman who is connected with Seaver and they end up end up sort of running with that as the motivation for this offense. Spoiler alert, no arrest was ever made. So... It's interesting because, you know, he he makes this big sort of declaration that like he knows who this person is and then nothing like no, no arrest is made. So, well, I feel like there was probably pressure for him to say something. So he just had to create Jeez. something. And I mean, it wasn't particularly smart because it doesn't say anything at all, but maybe, maybe that's the point. Let me, maybe let me do something that sounds salacious, but is so broad that it can't be committed to anything that will come back on me. Yeah. And you know, know what these, these vintage episodes are making me so curious about is to just like go back and research DA investigator Blaney Matthews. Like what other cases did he work on? Right. Like what was kind of his MO? Was he a particularly corrupt person in the city of Los Angeles? It's just, it's like opening up all these other things that I'm now super curious about. Exactly. So now you already gave the spoiler alert, which was great. I mean, and adds to the mystery because nobody was ever found or out of all the suspects, there was never anyone to pin anything on, but it continued to get more complex. There was an extortion note that emerged in early January 1934. A package was delivered to a Mrs. Cook's former residence addressed to her because the mailman knew of the address change and had brought it to the correct location, even though the old address was written on it. So remember, the night he died, Dr. Seaver planned to attend a dinner with Mrs. Cook on Pasadena's Millionaire's Row, which there was a lot of money in Pasadena oh, yeah. at that time. There is still a lot of money there. There is a lot of old, old California money that is still in Pasadena. And this area is where Jack Parsons also had his mansion that was mentioned in our previous Devil's Gate episode. Oh, so, the sex occult mansion? I know, exactly. She wasn't home, so her father, who had opened the door and received the package, opened it up. The package contained a note and 
the wristwatch belonging to Dr. Seaver that supposedly had been removed during or after his murder. The note demanded $5,000, which would have been a huge amount of money at the time and was likely scrawled with like a non-dominant hand in an attempt to sort of disguise the letter writer's penmanship. And here's the quote from the letter. You are in a hot spot. You want to know the real truth? For $5,000, I give complete information. Also, Pistol 32. I think Pistol have finger marks on it. I swear this is truth before got. I was in Brookside Park on Wednesday, December 13th and saw party hide this evident. Answer <laughs> one. A. This, this is Scott reading this as the person trying to dis- disguise who they are because they're spelling everything wrong. It's, right. They're spelling everything wrong. I feel like I need the, like, the parentheses like, S-I-C. I mean, that like yeah. floating over this entire <laughs> You're doing um, great. You're paragraph. doing great. Okay, thanks. So, A, Examiner 120, sign Mabel. If you want to deal, I'd be very happy to accommodate you. If not, someone else be glad to pay reward. You know who, if not, police will, and you will be very sorry. Do not tell police if you want to deal. Must be cash. In don't want trouble. $5,000. Okay. <laughs> We're writing Good it job. directly as it was written. So I'm not, I am not attempting to do an accent or any kind of pigeon. What I'm doing is, so don't write a review don't come at me. <laughs> that I'm being racist or anything, because that we're just trying to give you an accurate view of someone clearly trying to extort money. And then another point, probably having, well, I mean, would they have something to do with it? They got the watch. They have the watch, but they're saying, I saw the party hide this evidence in a park. So I feel like it's it's a person who did it, but they're trying to put some distance between them. Like, oh, I just stumbled upon this evidence. Yeah, okay. right, whatever. Well, it's really dumb because that's not well <laughs> thought out at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, that's my professional opinion. That's really dumb. What um, an idiot. I know. So there's a lot of grammatical issues here, lots of mistakes, choppy writing. And like we both agreed on, it's it's got to be an attempt to hide the identity of the writer. The newspaper ad was left and a phone call was set up to follow through with the ransom drop to catch the crook. A person called Mrs. Cook's residence and they had a female police officer answer as her. The man on the other line asked for Francis, but then quickly hung up. The call was traced by police to a public phone in a park. But of course, by the time they arrived, there was nobody there. So following this, you know, failed attempt at making the connection, there was a series of prank notes that were delivered to Mrs. Cook's house following the initial letter with the watch. Yes. Wow. I mean, it just, this is crazy. The watch makes me think it's legit for sure. These other series that came after, because I'm sure, you know, the newspaper printed all of this and people were probably like, oh, I want to get my $5,000 too. You know, I'm sure people came out of the woodwork right? or, you know, was it just, I don't know. I think sometimes notes can be written off as pranks when maybe they're not. Just at this time, we have so many old vintage crimes where ransom notes and different notes to the newspaper and police were written. So who knows? But interesting. Yeah. It seems to imply that the person who committed the crime, or at least the person who is delivering the watch, has at least some information and enough information to think that they can extort that family. Or maybe there actually is a real reason. Maybe there is. I mean, but it could also just be some thug that came up and attempted to mug him and, you know, took the watch and then realized like, oh, shit, I can't fence this. This is a really expensive watch. They're going to know who did it. And then Mm -hmm. follows the news for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. and builds out a story around that. Again, conjecture. I'm just saying it, it might be something that could have happened. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It might be something that could happen. <laughs> 
It might be coulda, woulda, shoulda. Yeah, there there was also a weird thing that happened in April of 1934. So now we're like, you know, almost six months after the crime occurring, another doctor comes forward to claim $8,500 from the Seaver estate. So basically, police end up speculating, why would Seaver had to borrow $8,500 from this doctor? Because, you know, his, his affairs are getting put in order and whatever's happening with his estate. And then, you know, you can submit like, oh, well, this person owes me a certain amount of money. So the police sort of think of like, oh, could this be a lead as to maybe why he was in financial trouble or did he have a gambling problem? What what is going on? Is there some sort of money here owed that cost him his life? Not necessarily from this doctor, but like, did he owe other people money too? But then the police were like, well, is this even legit? Because he knew wealthier people in his close circle and this doctor that came forward wasn't a part of that inner circle. So they thought, well, he could have just gone to his friends or Dr. Weston that he lived with if he needed to borrow money and would have borrowed from someone he was closer to. I think that's total speculation on their part because maybe you don't want to go to people you're close to if you're really in need of money and you want to keep it more low key. So I don't know what to make of this. Other reports said that his business actually wasn't that lucrative and he was spending a substantial amount of money to remain kind of in these high profile social circles. So, you know, going back to what you were saying about this type of dentistry practice, I wonder if in 1933, being that it was a luxury service, if even for wealthy people, it was too much of a luxury service. So business wasn't even that great for him, but he still had to sort of keep up this lifestyle. But nothing really came of this doctor coming forward to claim this money. There wasn't even mention of like who he was or the police flushing out this as a lead. But I just, I thought it was interesting to look at this aspect of, could this be a reason for the crime, a motive for the crime was that, you know, he just wasn't great with money at this time in his life. I love that you found that. And I am right on board with that area of inquiry because what it makes me want instead of the lieutenant trying to do a profile on the supposed perpetrator of the murder, why not an actual profile on Seaver himself? Maybe there is a little bit of a con going on. Maybe he is sort of this Don Juan or Lothario that is sort of a, a talented Mr. Ripley type of character yeah. that has fooled all these people and has a good publicist or knows how to publicize himself as the premier aesthetic dentist to Beverly Hills, which is at that time, Beverly Hills would have been a very long way away from Pasadena. Oh. Oh, yeah. It would have been considered like almost on the other side. I mean, it literally was on the other side of the city. So feels like a long ways away for me. It actually is for you. Yeah. Today. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I don't know how much victimology as we know it today was done back then. Oh, okay. It almost feels as if they kind of, and, and again, realize, you know, we're kind of garnering our information from these newspapers who are going to print what sells newspapers. And even though we know the relationship between the police and journalists back then was pretty tight and like journalists would arrive on scenes before police would and they would share information back and forth, you know, we're, we're still weeding through like the, the salaciousness of headlines and information. So it feels like he was stamped with this like playboy persona and that was kind of it. So I think that's interesting that you say like it would have been nice to have a fuller, more well-rounded profile on him just as a person because like he doesn't have any 
family if he's from Russia and he came out to California by himself. And he's living um, a very moderate life, moderate yeah. restaurants, except when he's sort of in the presence of society. Right. So he's managing his money in some ways, maybe because mm-hmm. he needs to, to be able to buy the clothes to fit yeah. in with the hire. It's like that Simpsons episode where Marge splurges on a Chanel suit just so she can hang out with. Yeah. With the rich women. Well, and he was getting ready to go to Harvard Law School. So he had to pay for that too. Yeah. Interesting. That very interesting plan there. I mean, that's another, like you're in Southern California doing dentistry work, but you're going to prepare for a radical career change. I mean, that seems to imply something, but I'm going to leave that because we got more to say. So a murder weapon was discovered, as we talked about, on the night that he was killed, two hours before his body was found. A motorist on Western Avenue in Los Angeles saw an object glistening in his headlights on the wet street. Now, Western Avenue in Los Angeles is a long way from Pasadena, yeah. by the way. And it runs for a long way, so I don't even know where in Western, on Western in Los Angeles this was. But right, but even at, its, even at its northernmost point, Western is still like a long way away from Pasadena. I mean, yes. it could, but Western could also go south all the way to the beach communities. Yep. So, yep. and here we are again, like the Californians talking about streets in Los Angeles and transportations. So it turns out that the weapon was a revolver with two exploded rounds. So the driver retrieved the weapon, wasn't yet connecting it to a murder in Pasadena, because of course, why would this person know? And in June, 1934, it was handed over to Detective Thomas, who had his ballistic experts look at it. And they say that it's a better match than any of the guns that had previously been looked at. So there's no follow-up articles on this, but that does seem pretty yeah. clear that like this gun dropped in the middle of the street and it's pretty close or it's more close than anything else they have. That right. seems like a, a pretty significant it was, thing. It was found two hours after the murder as we know it, probably that good time frame of when it took place. So yeah, I mean, I, ballistics again, not fantastic back then, but it looked like a good match and we just don't know really if that ended up being proven in any way because there's no further follow-up but interesting so a woman comes forward just kind of jumping around to another lead here and says that she was actually engaged to dr siever she was a dancer out of san francisco her name was miss muriel evans and she said that she had met dr siever in 1926 up in san francisco she was performing as a professional dancer there and said that they fell in love they became engaged but at some point the engagement was broken off and she has some very interesting quotes about him and some things that he had told her whether or not you know there there wasn't a lot of people that knew about her but it also makes sense if she was away from the Los Angeles area that maybe he even kept that a secret if he had his sort of playboy lifestyle going on down here however she said quote I always thought he had some fear of someone and I remember him asking me what would you think if you found me with my head chopped off and lying in a pool of blood and she said I told him jokingly, I would keep on dancing because she just thought it was so ridiculous and what a like silly thing to say. But obviously in hindsight, she thought differently. And she went on to say, I remember another time after we had become engaged, he told me he had a quote, purple past and that he had made an awful mistake in his life. Do you know what purple past means? Well, the use of the term purple, what I'm familiar with from my undergrad lit studies was you talk about purple prose, which is like sort of salacious, dramatic, 
not really suitable for work, not suitable for polite <laughs> company, you know? So Got I've it. never heard of a purple past. Uh-huh. I'm just going to make an assumption. And I even Googled it. Like I was like, I've never heard of it so using the I. term, but I do know what purple prose is. Like purple prose is like pulp novels of, you know, really steamy noir sex novels and stuff. So I think that's what Mm. she's referring to. I find it, you know, not to be disrespectful to the dancer by any means, Muriel. Because you would uh, never do that to another dancer. Never do that to another dancer. We have a code. But it does seem like I would like to know more. I would like to know more about the relationship. Like, who knew that they had ever had a connection? It just seems very convenient. And I wonder if she was somebody that was just trying to sort of elevate her own star by connecting okay. herself with crime. Because as we know from the movie Chicago and the stage play Chicago, which were based on actual events, this is what was going on in the 30s. Is mm. like you could, the bigger your story, the yeah. more attention to it actually could get you off of crimes. So yeah, yeah true. Um, I, I just, I'm just saying that as a point, I'd be very interested to know more about her if there was anything out there. But of course, what could would any good murder investigation be without the two cents of a a psychic, you know, with a neon sign in their front yard? Papers reported that a fortune teller had told the police that the dentist had been secretly married to an Italian woman who died after a surgery. And further, the fortune teller said that the woman's brother traveled from Italy and killed him. But of course, Nothing ever panned out from this <laughs> right. lead. Oddly specific for Very a psychic. specific. Yes, yes. Any mystery Italian men in the area at the time? I don't know. <laughs> Traveled all the way from Italy to kill him. <laughs> okay, well, that's most of our theories and leads that we could find. However, last but certainly not least, there could be a possible George Hodel connection as speculated by his son, Steve Hodel, former LAPD homicide detective and friend of the show. As a quick review, George Hodel was a Los Angeles surgeon and venereal disease expert from Los Angeles who was one of the leading suspects in the Black Dahlia murder for a number of reasons, extensive surgical experience. And if you remember, Elizabeth Short was bisected, history of sexual misconduct. He was a close friend with a surrealist artist whose art very much mimicked the ways in which Elizabeth Short's body was posed, as well as the fact that his house was actually wiretapped by the LAPD at the time, catching him talking about the Black Dahlia murder and the death of his secretary and then him fleeing the country shortly after that. I was I was going to tell you about Steve's theory as to why he thinks his father may also be responsible for the murder of Dr. Seaver, but why don't we just hear it from him? Let's do that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So basically, it's one of the chapters in uh, the early years books. And uh, there were a number of things that really jumped out at me. Unique crime signatures, MOs to to, to George Hodel. These were basically the fact that, well, number one, he lived in the area. His residence was five miles away. He lived in South Pasadena and about 4.6 miles from the actual crime scene. The other thing was, of course, becomes very clear the obvious motive for the killing appears to be jealousy. Of course, Dr. Seaver was a, they called him the Don Juan dentist, and he had a lot of girlfriends and was a, a charming individual, uh, well-known in Pasadena. So had a lot of, apparently had a lot of girlfriends. They seemed to document this. Many of dad's, my father's crimes, George Hodel's crimes, were based on jealousy. In fact, another one of the 30s crimes that I present is actually a, a jealousy killing where 
I believe he killed one of his his high school students. Oh, um, wow. And, and I, I make a strong connection on that. And it was she rejected him in high school. And I, I think that was the motive. So living close by. The other thing was, of course, the, the nature of the crime itself. We have a young, attractive woman that goes just minutes before he's killed. I think the police pretty much looked at this as she went to warn him. Mm-hmm. Somebody was coming. Somebody was upset. And we have a description of that woman, which very much fits the person that I was dating at the time, which was my mother, Dorothy O'Dell, Dorothy Harvey. She had just broken up. With, she had been married to John Houston for seven years, broke up with him, came back and hooked back up with George. The description given by the witness, I think it was a secretary at Dr. Seeger's office, was I think 30-ish, early 30s, dark hair. But the thing that she mentioned the most was a really good-looking Good looker as far as a dresser. Right. Dress very, very chic. chic. Yes. Very yes. chic dresser. Uh-huh. And of course, one of the things my mom was, was a, I mean, tremendously chic dresser. I think that Houston, one of his complaints in the divorce was that she was spending lavish amounts of money on clothing. Mm. So, of course, that rang a bell, too. And, and just the, the whole description of her fit perfectly. Now, I'm not saying it was mother. It could have been anyone. But it certainly fits mom. Then we get into the crime itself, and the suspect actually sends letters in. Right. He sends taunting letters. He sent a watch, a very unusual, that's a very unusual MO. I had 300 murder cases and never had my suspect send a piece of property hmm. to a witness or anyway, I believe there's a strong possibility that he mailed it. He also feigned, tried to sound like a foreigner, illiterate in the wording in the letter. I think the law enforcement came back and said, no, this is an educated man. They actually printed an article that Whoever wrote the letters is feigning ignorance and is actually an educated person. So there was that, which was very unique and unusual. Yeah, the letter was almost difficult to read because of the extreme effort put into the misspellings and the grammar. And it's almost comical. And the voice in it, uh, of course, many of my many of George's other crimes, he sends letters in Mm -hmm. with the same sound same sounds as the same voice basically hmm. as as the other letters he's feigning ignorance and illiteracy and stuff so there's that and then we have there was a dr wagner who was a witness and i think he was in the he had his his office in the same building we're not really sure how how much he knew if he knew anything but he was considered a witness a strange occurrence happens where he goes to a, takes an actress, Dorothy Dell, to a party, uh, and they're coming back, and they have an accident, and they're both killed in the accident. Well, in another one of my father's crimes that I lay out, the star witness is actually killed in an accident, and many suspect that he was run off the road, and the car overturned and killed him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a very important witness in one of the other crimes I attribute to George O'Dell. So there's that. And some said in the Seaver thing that there, that was suspicious, that there may have been foul play there. So so we have that. But probably the most important linkage to my mind was an article that appeared describing the perfect villain. And this really this really jumped out at me. Yes, this um, is the article that they they believed that the DA at the time was the source here of putting out this very unique suspect profile. I think the DA was Blaney Matthews, as I recall. 
this article appeared in the newspaper and it, the headline was Society for Friend Potential Villain. And here's some just some bullet points I made uh, that jump out at me. It's a perfect description of George O'Dell at that time and place. They say in the article, they say villain had jealous hatred for Seaver, but pretended his friendship. Well, C well, Dr. Seaver was a patron of the arts and music. And of course, dad was a musical prodigy. And that was what, I think 15 years younger than him. Right. And uh, in Pasadena, he was a musical prodigy and very likely impossible that he was a patron of Dr. Sievers. It, that certainly fits. They described, they say the suspect was a dope addict known to fly into frenzies under the influence of narcotics. We know that dad was involved in narcotics use back then as a young, a young man. They described the suspect as a sharp analytical mind, a native cunning and diabolical shrewdness. Mm -hmm. All of those fit with my father's 186 IQ and at Caltech at the age of 15. He, they say he would have provided himself with a perfect alibi. They described him as intelligent and suave and the victor in many battles of wits in Pasadena drawing rooms. Dad did debate and involve himself in Pasadena society and in the drawing rooms there. So he, he was well known as for his intelligence and ability to debate. So it sounds like there's a couple of different ways in which just the social circles would have overlapped for these Absolutely. two individuals. A absolutely. That um, seems to go right along the lines of what you're talking about, jealousy. You know, even if it would, even if it didn't have anything to do necessarily with the woman, which it likely does, the right. idea that here's another well-renowned, socially adept individual, and also they're both snazzy dressers, and I'm sure, you know, <laughs> yes. I mean, we're, we're talking about they're moving in the same circles in in a way. There He's could be some competition. Yeah, they are, and they go on and they are described as a dabbler in criminology, said to have become passionately fond of a woman who Seaver was acquainted with. And he was an amateur criminologist. Uh, did, they, they asked the question, did the amateur criminologist become a ruthless slayer? So all of these things fit George to a T. And it made me suspicious enough to where actually I went to, I contacted Pasadena PD, cold case unit, and said, hey, I'd like to come and present, you know, present my information to you and have you take a look at it and see what you can find. Because I was quite confident that if they got into the files, they would find George O'Dell's name there as sure. this individual. So I went, I called and I, I went in and actually I was surprised. I thought I was meeting with a detective, mm -hmm. but I actually met with the chief of police, uh, Chief Sanchez at the time. And I did, a, I gave him a 22 page summary along with, a, I did a PowerPoint for him, presented it. It took me about an hour to present all the evidence to him. So he, he says, well, I'll certainly get with my guys and uh, we'll get back to you and let you know. Mainly, I just wanted to find out, was was the name George Hodel this individual? And um, so he got back to me in about three weeks or a month and said, well, everything, all the files have disappeared. So funny how that happens so often, right? Yeah, I think he, he contacted, I mean, it would have been with the DA's office more likely. Mm -hmm. Certainly Pasadena would have had a certainly some of the information. So there was nothing in Pasadena. And I I don't know if he went to the DA to try and get the information on the name of this this society themed a potential villain or not. So that was kind yeah. of where that was left off. But but um, everything about this case, along with the fact that dad was an active serial killer before and after this, this crime, 
really, I think, puts him high on the list of, you know, I, there's got to be some way we can find that name of who they're talking about here. They, I mean, yeah, pretty public about it. <laughs> so so you're of the opinion that the DA had a particular person in mind and was describing the profile of this person, but having the suspect of George Hodel probably at the top of his list. Oh, in fact, the article said they anticipated an arrest. And there's no question they had him, this individual identified. Yeah, okay, got it. Yeah, and so whether it was George Hodel or not, I I think it absolutely was, mm-hmm. because there's so many, you know, descriptions here that fit perfectly. So that's amazing stuff always to hear yeah. from him, from somebody that has such a an absolute integral understanding of Los Angeles history from his own personal life. It's just very valuable. Yeah. So thank and you the, for putting that together. Of, yeah. Yeah. The the amount of research and investigation that, that man does is just unmatched no matter what you think. Yeah. So I believe um, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. So I I wanted to actually kind of go off on a tangent before we close on this episode of this mystery. And I wanted to say something that I don't know if it necessarily plays any part in this. We'll probably never know unless some trove of evidence suddenly emerges in the next 50 years or whatever. But there is some interesting things that just kept popping up about Patricia Highsmith. If any of you are familiar with the Patricia Highsmith novels about the talented Mr. Ripley, wonderfully played by Matt Damon in a movie, and now as a series that is coming out about a con man who is has a lot of intrinsic characterological issues that span the entire access to diagnostic criteria, mm-hmm. who starts to murder in order to support his lifestyle, to be able to keep up this view of himself presented as someone who is very wealthy. And I'm not saying that Seaver, because we'll never know if Seaver was involved in any of these things, but there is something about Dr. Seaver's style that I think is very interesting and reflective of what was going on in society at the time. So, This is a couple of things that come up to my mind about this era. I mean, we took time to describe how Seaver was described by journalists at the time within the context of how men's style has changed. I mean, for a broad example, we have this term coined in the 1990s called metrosexual. So that is a heterosexual male who puts more attention to grooming, styling, clothing, and public presentation than maybe his other male peers. And along with this, at least in American culture, there was more acceptance of the breadth and depth of this understanding of male sexuality that came out during the 1990s. I mean, mm-hmm. while there are cultural factors that contributed to this in the 1990s, I'll always give credit to Will and Grace for totally. like making that emerge where guys are just like, oh, I'm not going to be threatened by this anymore. But I'm also not going to minimize the idea that men's style goes in cycles. And sometimes you can connect those styles to what's going on in the economy. Sure. So on one hand, we have the well-groomed, oiled, buffed, shaved, groomed, um, metrosexual. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have the lumbersexual with the unruly beard going back to flannel. And it happens over and over again. You can look at 30 years of GQ magazine, and it'll show that going through over and over again. So Seaver was described as a playboy, but he was also described as a feat or feminine with reports from the day, not understanding how he could be desired by women. Like Mm -hmm. they, 
we're very kind of skirting the issue very carefully, it seems like, in the newspaper articles. Like, he has effete characteristics, but he's not feminine. But he right. likes lacy things and jewels. But he's a guy. And he goes to all these women functions. But, you know, we're, we're saying, like, we're screaming he's not gay without saying that he's not gay. Yes, I was just going to say, like, what do you make of that? Do you think they were trying to say, like, hmm, is he gay? And is this all a ruse? Or is he the smartest guy in the room and learned how to be in the place where all the women are at? <laughs> well, I'm, it, I think either of those could hold weight. And yeah. again, it's 100 years old, so we don't know. But the more I got into this, I thought, oh, well, it's interesting and it's interesting building and what a mystery. And then I started thinking about it more and more. And like, who was this guy? And what role, what space was he trying to inhabit at this time in the world at this time in the 1930s in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's and, fascinating to me. And what was influential at that time? Right. Like what what are, was influencing his behavior and his, be, or yeah, his behavior. Yes. And that leads me to another tangent. <laughs> so thank you cool. for that I'm intro. For because I think, I'm going to conjecture here, that he would have represented an exotic contrast to the more strict definition of masculinity within the working class. Mm -hmm. And that's how he was able, even within the rich elements of society at that time, he was able to kind of have a doorway into their salons, into their meetings, into their social events. So starting around the same time, a shift in views of traditional masculinity was happening in American culture, mainly due to one man's career. Raffaello Pierre Philibert Guglielmi di Valentina di Antonguola. Oh, who boy. Is, I know it's a mouthful. Yep. Guess who that was? It was Rudolph Valentino. Yep. So after making it to America from Italy at age 18, Rudolph Valentino, as he later became known when he became a star, he faced a number of challenges finding work and eventually moving west to L.A. after struggling in bit parts and forgettable movies, his foreign and aristocratic looks eventually won him this breakout role in the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in 1921, so a decade before. So now he is wildly known across the world as Rudolph Valentino, the Latin lover, and his celebrity status was completely sealed. For five more years, Valentino would be the country's most beloved film star, setting into motion not only a hunger for all things Spanish, even though he was Italian. I know. I'm like, Latin lover? Um, I know. Not... <laughs> But it, it influenced all these areas of men's culture in America. So now men were wearing shirts that would have been considered dandified. They were wearing ties and coats made of fabrics that were colors that would have previously been considered effeminate for a man to wear. So remember at this time, style and fashion, particularly for men, traveled really slowly. So the more mm -hmm. styled and colorful influence of the dress of Southern Italy was really far from the mainstream in America. So because Valentino's taste never really adjusted to American sensibilities completely, he became an icon and a significant influencer of this time for fashion and for grooming. While his masculinity was often questioned by the other male film stars and a few female film stars as well, his persona and seductive style were adored by women. He had a clear connection to European clothing. Most of his clothing was now being made custom in London and shipped over. He would get this criticism of being effeminate in his style, focusing on things like his love of fabrics, his love of jewelry. So I'm just saying that maybe he wasn't the first metrosexual, but he was definitely one of the most influential at a time when a challenge to traditional views of Western cultural masculinity had not been challenged in a broad public eye. Well, and I... I imagine some of the criticisms come from men who are not thrilled that all these women just 
adore him. And then you get the critiques and they went with, oh, he's effeminate. So maybe the same thing's happening with Seaver, right? He's such a ladies' right. man. They love him because he's, quote, I mean, I hate this term, quote unquote, so exotic or, you know, he's not from here and he's smart and he loves the arts and men are insecure about that. So what are they going to say about him? Right. You think of films at the time, we're just coming out of the silent era where so many Westerns were made. So that was really a huge sort of influence on what American masculinity was supposed to look like, which is weird because it means that we're creating an idea of what something is supposed to look like based on what we decide it's going to be versus what it really is. So here he is completely pushing back against that. And, you know, you've got the iconic Gary Cooper, you know, who this gorgeous cowboy of a man. And then you have somebody like Rudolph Valentino that is a completely different view of male beauty. And thank you very much for really focusing on that particular word that I've used a couple of times, exotic, because that can really hold a lot of weight that can be considered pejorative. And that's not what I'm trying to say in the way that we use it to describe women because it is very pejorative and minimizing and diminishing of women, especially in today's Mm -hmm. society, the way it's used. I'm quoting newspapers about how he was viewed as a man at the time. We're talking about Rudolph Valentino. So critics couldn't understand why women literally fainted watching his movies or seeing him in public, because I think it's because he represented a refined and an alien sexuality to women and probably a few men oh, yeah. that set them apart from the others, like you were saying. And that, of course, made me remember this thing that I had fallen into another rabbit hole that I just find so fascinating. It's really reminiscent of this research thread that was on Twitter by Dr. Eric Wade, who is a historian. And these quotes are so great. So he had been doing research on Anglo-Saxon history and the influence of the wars between the Anglo-Saxons and the Danes back in the early, early centuries. So I'm going to quote something. One 13th century chronicle attributed the slaughter of Danes by Anglo-Saxons in 1002 to the former's irresistibility to the latter's spouses. The Danes made themselves too acceptable to English women by their elegant manners and their care of their person. They combed their hair daily according to the custom of their country and took a bath every Saturday and even changed their clothes frequently. And what? Improved... <laughs> they did and what? They did what? And improved the beauty of their bodies with many such trifles by which means they undermined the chastity of our wives. <laughs> so, basically as Dr. Wade paraphrases, we had to kill the Vikings because they bathed and they brushed their hair and our wives couldn't resist their sophistication. (laughs) They used bath bombs. (laughs) Right, exactly. But Dr. Wade is really funny. And now I'm just obsessed with all his posts. He goes on later to say, I too am a sucker for a man who sometimes changes his clothing. Love it. I love That's it. That's hilarious. So look, while all of this is humorous, it is interesting to me that this man, Seavers, was so noted for his style and his attention to grooming with commentary on his manner and the way he carried himself. Was he a playboy? Did women see him as a mannered alternative to their regular kind of knuckle-dragging brutish husbands? Or was he a closeted man who met a tragic end at the hand of a petty hustler? I don't know. Or something else having to do with the dancer, having to do with the doctor he borrowed money from, allegedly. I mean, all in all, this is a true mystery. I really appreciate you bringing this up. I had no idea that we were going to be able to dig in the way that we have. And I love that it's ironically named the Sphinx Murders because it is all too apt about 
what a sphinx represents. Mm -hmm. There's a famous quote about this mythological legend of this half-human woman, half-lion that says, the sphinx murders all the men who cannot solve her riddle. Mm, I love that. It gives me goosebumps. It does. And like, it gives you this image of this body sprawled on the steps in a pool of blood between these two, you know, beautiful but austere stone-faced sphinxes. I love it. And it's, it gives you a chill. Yeah. You guys didn't know you were going to get a history lesson, a cultural lesson, as well as your murder today, right? (laughs) As well as a lot of conjecture. (laughs) Right. Well, that, you know, we have not been shy in saying that part of the fun of doing these vintage episodes is we get to do that a little bit more because right. we don't have a lot to work with. Scott and I work really hard to find everything that there is. And again, it's it's less research heavy in the sense of like, what do we know in the here and now today and leaning more on possibilities because we're talking about some some old stuff here and just some really interesting stuff. So Absolutely. And weren't these episodes supposed to be shorter? I mean, we're this kind one of was supposed to be, it. but here we did it again. <laughs> You're right. Awesome. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed and please look forward to our next episode, which will be going back to a forensic psych topic that we're sure you are going to like. And with that, we'll see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye, guys. Bye, folks. See you next time. Bye bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential wherever you get your audio so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential.